0: Good morning. It's good to be with you all again. Last time I preached at Grace, other than this morning, I was in the basement of the Stony Brook School, preaching from a classroom. So, excited to be in person. So, our passage today is Hebrews 12, so if you could turn there. Hebrews 12, we're going to be looking at 1 through 17. Uh, One of the benefits of guest preaching is that I can choose passages that I am uniquely interested in at the current moment, since I don't have to do whatever topic Mark deeply wants me to do, I guess. Uh, And the topic that I've been interested in recently has been uh, the discipline of God. Um, What it means for God to discipline those whom he loves, and Hebrews 12 is all about that. 2020 feels like a year for examining God's discipline. Now, the book of Hebrews... uh, is the book in the New Testament we know the least about when it comes to who wrote it. Uh, We have the most arguments over that, but one thing that is true about Hebrews is it is clearly written to an audience who love Jesus, follow after him, but are not sure if it's worth it. They have counted the cost and they are enduring persecution, antagonism for their faith, and they are wondering, is this going to pay off in the end? And this is what uh, our author says. We're going to look at 12, 1 through 17, but I'm going to split it up into uh, smaller parts. So let's start by just looking at Hebrews 12, uh, 1 through 4. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus Father, thank you for your word, may we be receptive to it, may we recognize uh, what an awesome privilege it is to sit before your word and to be uh, spoken to by you, to be instructed by you. Help us to hear you now, and in Jesus' name, amen. So when uh, I was in high school, I became pretty good friends with the high school baseball coach. I wasn't actually on the baseball team, but uh, we connected over a variety of ways, um, Actually, what I came to find out later, at one point during my, I guess it was my junior, senior year, I was pretty down about some things, and my dad actually went to coach Chris Carter, the baseball coach, who was like, hey, my son's kind of down, just putting him on your radar. And he, uh, that day in class, gave me a baseball hat for the team and made me the unofficial, like, honorary player of the game, and I got to be introduced in the playoff game and all that. And they won the first game, so he's like, well, you're good luck. So I just went the whole playoff, sitting on the bench, uh, which was great. But uh, Coach Chris Carter was a really good man, and uh, he played baseball himself and made it all the way up to uh, AAA, uh, about as close as you can get to the majors without getting to the majors. His claim to fame is that he got a hit off Greg Maddox in spring training. But this one story he told us once in class that I uh, still think about, find pretty funny, is he played for Clemson University, and the policy at Clemson at the time, which I'm sure it's still the policy, is if you don't show up to class, you can't. Participate in practice, and he was a good student, so he showed up to class all the time, but occasionally he would skip and one of the days that he did skip, of course, the team sent representatives to every classroom and realized that he was not there. When he came to practice later that day, uh, the coach gathered the team together and said, "Well, fellows, uh, it seems like one of us, Chris, really doesn 't think that class is worth the effort and has just come to college to relax and take it easy so." I've decided that we're going to dedicate this practice to helping him with that. He's like, boys, go ahead and start running. I got Chris. We'll, we'll work on some things. And the team just starts running around the bases. Meanwhile, he takes Chris out to the mound, sets up like a beach chair, has him lay down, pours him a glass of lemonade, gives him something to eat. He's like, are you comfortable? Are you sure? And for an hour, the team runs laps around Chris, who has to sit in the chair being weighted hand and foot by the baseball coach. Uh, at the end of practice... The team sweaty, angry at Chris, Chris very nervous, Uh, they all went into the clubhouse and the coach just said, hey, I, oh, I left something in my office. I'm going to leave the clubhouse unattended by me for a few minutes. Why don't you guys just work out your differences amongst yourselves and left? And that is the end of Coach Carter's story as he tells it, but he says he never missed class again after that. Now, uh, nowadays we might frown on that as a form of discipline, but Even if we differ in our beliefs on the methodology of discipline, we're usually pretty aligned in the reasons for discipline. We want our kids to become mature, wise, selfless people. We want them to show up to class so they can go to practice. Teaching at a boarding school, I interact with people from all sorts of different cultures and I get to hear people speak about their parents and it's remarkable to see the differences in disciplinary approaches um, between cultures. But no matter what, this always seems to be true. If the kid doesn't ultimately buy into the process and see that disciplinary process as an extension of parental love, they usually reject it. Discipline doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And it's possible to resist that discipline to the point where it doesn't increase anything except maybe bitterness. On a much smaller level, uh, I can see this in my classroom. I teach 8th graders, then 10th graders, and I occasionally work with seniors on their uh, college essays. And I'll note that, uh, with some exceptions, but often the res- how receptive a student is in the 8th grade to critique on their writing and how malleable they are to change can kind of tell you what they're going to be like as a writer when they're a senior. I've had really great writers come in in the eighth grade who believe they're awesome and will not take any critique. And by the time they're seniors, they've grown very marginally as writers. I've had other students come in, not great writers, who were receptive, listening. By the time they were seniors, they're like, man, this is really good. You've really grown as a writer. I can see that the people who submit to the process of critique grow and change and get better, and those who don't stagnate. Now, it's easy for me to be hard on my students, but the truth is, I don't want to submit to any kind of discipline either. And when I did writing occasionally for magazines or something and an editor would come back with the thing bleeding and red, my first reaction was always like, that was awesome, what's wrong with you? You know, um, I don't want to submit to it either. I think this is true of most of us. We don't want to submit to the discipline of God. Now, this discipline that I'm talking about, it's worth clarifying, it may mean particular discipline for particular sins, definitely, it could also simply be this, the training that we go through as we grow into righteous people. God disciplines us ultimately because he wants us to move from innocence to righteousness. When first hearing about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, many of my students respond, Well, why did God put this tree in the middle of the garden anyway? If there wasn't this option, then everybody would still be happy, we'd be great. And the answer is that God is uninterested in keeping us in this state of innocence. He wants Adam and Eve to move from innocence to righteousness. That's the goal. Even if Adam and Eve had not failed, if you think about this, even if they had not failed, they still would have suffered in some way, right? Because there was this fruit that they looked good to eat, and they would have had to say no. They would have experienced some suffering because God's goal, innocence to righteousness. And that's actually what we do with our kids as well, right? When they're born, they're super cute, they're, uh, even, which is good because they keep you up all night and throw up all over you, and it's good. They, they're really cute. Uh, and they seem very innocent, you know, and in, um, in maybe a moment of delusion, you may find yourself thinking things like, this child is just perfect, right? Um, but what has to happen is you can't keep your child in that state of innocence, right? They have to move to righteousness. They have to experience suffering. They have to go through hard things. So this is what God does for us. He moves us from innocence to righteousness. But it's hard. It requires discipline. And not just our own self-discipline. It requires discipline from the Father. And that's a hard thing to endure. But our passage today is meant to help us do that. So it asks us to do uh, three things. It wants us to look to Christ as we endure discipline. It wants us to act as sons. And it wants us to reject the example of Esau. So... Let's look at the first thing. Let's look to Christ. So, if we look again at our passage, uh, Hebrews 12. Notice our passage begins with this image. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is before us. We have this athletic image. The, uh, The runner is in an arena, surrounded by these witnesses. And Hebrews 11 makes it clear that those witnesses are martyrs and saints in God's kingdom. They're people who have suffered and endured. They've completed their race. So the first thing we see is this, is that God has not placed an easy path before the runner. It's going to be hard. They're going to have to lay aside every weight and sin which which clings so closely to do this. And uh, as we've said before, we're moving innocence to righteousness, and you know that requires suffering, and we know that because if we ever want to improve in any way, we're like, ah, I'm going to get in shape, what do we do? We go to a gym and purposefully tear our muscles, right? Uh, if we want to lose weight, we purposefully try to get rid of all the sugary food in the house. We force ourselves to endure suffering. But we don't like that, and in fact, I... I think you could make an argument that a lot of American society is built around getting the fruit of suffering without having to do the suffering. So if you go to a grocery store and look at the magazine, right, it'll, it'll be like this pill will allow you to eat whatever you want and you'll lose weight or any of those kinds of things. There are ways of avoiding the actual suffering required. Even we can think about like pornography and video games. There are ways to get certain things without putting in the work for it, like intimacy without the work of relationship, or I can pretend like I'm a great quarterback in the NFL without ever actually having to suffer or get on the field and and do that kind of thing. We're always looking for ways around the suffering. Well, the problem here is that ultimate flourishing is seeing and being with God, and that's worth any price, and that price frequently involves suffering. It's just part of the deal. So, if we naturally fight against suffering, how are we going to run the race? When we get up at the line and we look up and we're like, this is a tough race, I'm going to have to do a lot of hard work. How am I going to be able to pull this off? The answer in the scriptures is the Sunday school answer, and it's the right one. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, and that joy, by the way, was being united with us, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We look to Christ. We think of the great runner. That's how we run the hard race. Even though he was sinless, he didn't didn't deserve the suffering he went through, he still ran that race, even though it culminated in the cross because of his desire to be with us. Uh, If you've ever fallen head over heels in love with somebody or witnessed someone falling head over heels in love with somebody... You know that uh, you can... This kind of echoes what this is talking about. Um, I was talking to people in the first service. I recall, like, when I started dating Miss Barber, there was, like, a snow, snow day in the South is a really big deal because we don't have snow tires. I, if there's, like, an inch of snow in South Carolina. It's, like, buildings are burning. People are freaking out. Uh, you would laugh very hard, I think, if you could see our behavior. And everybody's get the milk and the bread! How will we make it six hours? Um, anyway, uh... I remember one snow day I was dating Miss Barber I had seen her the day before I would see her the day after It would be okay And still, you know, I pile in my car I'm driving through these perilous snow Southern conditions Almost getting into several accidents Just so I can be with her for like a meal, you know And I'm sure my parents, my friends are like You're an idiot, you know uh, Why do you do that? Well, because I'm enduring this uh, In some ways silly suffering Because my eyes are kind of on somebody else I'm like, I love Jessica I just want to be with her no matter what The scripture is kind of holding up that idea is that you can endure suffering if your eyes are on Christ who loves us. If your eyes aren't on Christ, that race is going to be brutally hard. It's probably going to defeat you. But the scriptures ask us to look up to Christ. And this image of Christ, the one who endured the cross, despises the shame, is sitting before us, the entirety of this passage. He provides the model for endurance. And this is really important. Ultimately, the gospel is not... Jesus suffered on the cross, so now I don't have to suffer in life. That is not the gospel. I hear that preached occasionally, and it makes me very uncomfortable. Uh, This idea that Jesus is a silver bullet for whatever might ail us in life, whether that's financial or emotional or health. Uh, If we take a cold, hard look at the scriptures, people who are close to God frequently suffer a lot. The gospel is instead this. Jesus took my judgment on the cross died and was resurrected as the true king so that we might be united with God. That's the gospel. And so I follow that Jesus because he has run the race. He has has done it. And I'm not making this up because earlier in Hebrews, uh, in Hebrews 5, 7 through 10, it says this about Jesus as a model for that suffering, as a model for someone like that's who we're supposed to be thinking of as we do this. Uh, It says, In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now listen to this. Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now this might make some of you nervous because uh, if you've been raised in the church and paid attention, you know that Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. And this thing says that he was made perfect. Well, what's it talking about? What's well, talking about, again, that transition from innocence to righteousness. Jesus, technically sinless, like Adam and Eve, given the opportunity to become perfectly the son of God, the one who takes the weight of sin upon his shoulders. That's what he's doing. And that's what we do, too. But there's another little encouragement thing. He's not just a model. It's not just, think of that guy who did really well and now you can do really well. It's also, notice, he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. The founder and perfecter. He runs the race for us. He has accomplished that race. He's not just a model. He's the one who came for us. He is the one who can bring us through the difficult path. Uh, in 2020, I've tried to stay in touch with a lot of my pastor friends who went to seminary with me and that kind of thing and kept tabs on their experience and how things are going. One of the themes I've heard from that group is experiencing more antagonism towards the gospel than uh, they're accustomed to. Um, and I have a, and there are a variety of reasons for that. I mean, I think some is there has been a lot of hypocrisy on the church on some issues, and we can understand why some people might be really frustrated with the church. Some of it just seems to be straight-up antagonism towards uh, God's word and God's role as a moral authority. But I have a friend who is a campus minister uh, on a campus, and he had some students come to him and say, hey, we'd love if you would do kind of a seminar on Christian sexual ethics and just explain them to us. And my friend's like, yeah, sure. I feel like I've been clear about that in the pulpit, but yeah, I'd love to do a more specific dive. Gathered together as ministry broke it down, and you know, lost like half his ministry. It just left. And he called me later and was like, did I do something wrong? Did I, did I just totally blow it? I had these students who were trying to follow after Christ and they all left. And As we were talking about it, we realized we don't really have a model for this. Uh, we've been really fortunate to grow up in a time when the gospel wasn't kind of that offensive to people. Uh, when that kind of thing wouldn't happen. And what my friend needed to do he needed to look to Christ, right? The one who, when crowds got too big, would say the really hard thing and half of them would leave. He needed to look to Christ because we, we don't actually have a mentor. I was like, all your mentors, have they ever experienced anything like that? And he's like, no. Like we, they're, not, they're not gonna help us right now in some ways. We need Christ. And not only is Christ gonna give us the model for enduring difficult things, but also to know that, yeah, he is with us. He is the one who founds and perfects my faith. What I owe most, I owe to God, right? I can't control reactions, but I can follow after Christ. So we have to look to Christ. Now the second thing, and this is the sweet spot of the passage, is chapter uh, is uh, verses five through eleven. So let's look at this. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now, real quick, when it says sons, this isn't a sexist thing of like sons over daughters. In that time period, the sons literally were full heirs in a way that uh, daughters were not. So when it says, my sons, you're regarded as sons, it's saying you are regarded as full heirs. You get all the rights and privileges of being a son of the king. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Here's the kicker. Outside of Christ, suffering can serve a variety of functions. A lot of times it can feel meaningless. You can watch people try to come up with narratives for why they are suffering. Uh, The scriptures, it may even serve as a type of judgment, kind of a taste of, hey, if you continue on, Sinning and living apart from God, it's going to end in death. It's of mercy, actually, when rebelling against God results in pain. But what this is saying is that discipline and suffering is actually evidence that we are God's children. That he loves us. There's an encouragement. Like, God wants me to go through this brutal thing because he wants me to move from innocence to righteousness and he wants me to move from innocence to righteousness because he loves me very deeply and is deeply invested. And that's what he did for Jesus. And the same way he treated Jesus, he now treats me as well because he has accepted me as a full heir. That's big news. That's encouraging stuff. We are being disciplined by someone who loves us and has our best interests in mind. Uh, Some of us have parents who are very good about that. Some of us do not. But I think all of us can envision what it would be like, right, to have a perfect parent who always has our best interests and and disciplines in the way that we know it's moving for our best interest. As Sinclair Ferguson points out, um, God's discipline comes out kind of three ways. We're often rebuked by the Father's word, sometimes even his own outstretched hand, and sometimes even by his enemies. In Hebrews, what we have is a group of people antagonistic towards the gospel in a, in a you know, combative way. And the he, he, author of Hebrews is saying that even that group is being used by God for the discipline of his people. That's really interesting. Even the people who are against them and want what's bad for them, God's like, I'm still using them to grow you closer to me. So the word there is, don't rise up and rebellion against God's discipline. We lean into it, right? Don't resist it. We see what God has for us. Now, is all suffering the discipline of God? No. We don't 100% know, you know, and I think that's why uh, I have to be careful from the pulpit. I I don't want to go around like, that's discipline, that's not, that's not. I think that's why we have mentors. That's why you're setting up grace groups to have things like to process, like I'm going through this suffering. What's going on here? What does God have in store for me? But I can say this with 100%. God always calls us to repentance from our sins. He always uses suffering to draw us closer to him. Those things are always true. It is never wrong to repent of our sins. It is never wrong to take comfort in the fact that we are treated as full heirs of the king. He's the good father, and we can take comfort in that. So let's see how this finishes up. So if these things are all true, if Jesus, we're running this race, the martyrs and saints are looking on as we run this very difficult race. Jesus is the model. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith who has already run the race perfectly and encouraging us along the way. We're being treated as sons, disciplined by the Father. So what do we do? Here's the conclusion. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. We get this little list of the dangers of what could happen, basically, if we resist against God's discipline. The first one is, you just kind of give up. Uh, you just say, ah, this, is, this is too much. And honestly, as culture, uh, American culture, becomes less and less sympathetic towards Christianity, I suspect we'll see people do that, right? Uh, kind of deconversions. Who are just like, ah, the cost seems too high. They're saying, avoid that. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make a straight path for your feet. So that what is lame, and I love this, may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed, right? Giving up is actually going to make it worse. You have to finish. Finish, right? That's where healing is. And the next thing that could happen is we could become really antagonistic to the people we're called to love. The author of Hebrews is saying, strive for peace with everyone. He's thinking about the people who are actively persecuting the believers, He's like, strive for peace with them, meaning that if we reject the discipline of the Lord, we may be inclined to hate them. We may be inclined to feel great anger towards people who are against us, which would mean we've forgotten what? We forgot the gospel, which is while we were enemies of God, Jesus came for us. If the gospel's in our head, if we're looking at Christ, we'll remember that and we'll strive for peace with everyone, including those who are actively against us, who actively don't want what is good for us, who are against God's people. And the last thing he says is, What may happen to you is a root of bitterness may spring up. Uh, honestly, right now, uh, I think so many of the political narratives I hear on these days on both sides seem to be avenues for avoiding self examination and calls to repentance and seem only to want to spring up roots of bitterness. It is so easy right now, I think, to say, this side is the enemy, this side is right, and look how ridiculous that enemy is, and before you know it, just bitterness is constantly spewing out. Speaking out of bitterness is quite simply something Christians don't do. We shouldn't do it. Christ had every reason to speak in bitterness to his enemies, And what's he doing while he's walking up to the cross? He's comforting everybody and praying to God to forgive the people who are killing him, right? When we catch ourselves speaking out of bitterness, I would say we've, we've lost sight of Jesus a little bit. We've lost sight of the fact that he wins. That he's the king. That he came for everyone. We've fallen into a trap of hating the people we are called to love. And I think we've got to do whatever we can to avoid that root of bitterness. Um, my wife has basically cut me off from the news because, in her mind, she says the more I was reading the news, the more I was falling into that bitterness. I was beginning to say things that weren't in line with the gospel. So that's what we have to avoid. And the author holds up for us this last image of someone who gave up on the race, Esau. And he says, uh, we need to avoid being unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. If you know the story of Esau, Esau is the firstborn. And he's a great hunter, and he looks the part, and people like him, I I suspect. And uh, one day he's out hunting, he comes back home, he's very hungry. He tells his brother Jacob, I'd really love some of the food you're cooking. And Jacob's like, tell you what, trade me your uh, birthright. Trade me your firstborn, your rank as a firstborn and I'll give you this stew. He's like, yeah, whatever. What is it to me? Trade it with you. Esau's the man who trades his spiritual heritage for physical comfort. He's the guy who looks at the race and says, eh, not worth it. What's more important is my experience right now. What's more important is what's happening to me right now. Not the big picture of running this race towards God. Dr. F.F. F. Bruce says this in, uh, in opposition to Esau's example. The man who accepts discipline at the hand of God as something designed by his heavenly father for his good will will cease to feel resentful and rebellious. They have stilled and quieted their soul, which thus provides fertile soil for the cultivation of a righteous life responsive to the will of God. I suspect that many of you this year have felt, uh, like me, opportunities to grow, to move from innocence to righteousness, Um, that I see many places in my life where I feel that God is actively disciplining me right now and calling me to greater dependence on him. And I also see all these different ways I could be distracted from that uh, and lured into roots of bitterness So our charge this morning is, as we look up and we see the race and we see all the distractions, that we would look to Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who will get us across the finish line as those, not rooted in bitterness, but those who love as Christ loved, those who loved our enemies. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you ran the race, that you did it perfectly That because of you, I can be fully united with God. That we can be together with you. You did it for the joy that was set before you. We know that the the only true way to do hard things without falling into bitterness is to do them motivated by joy and motivated by love. Father, there are so many things to be afraid of. There are so many reasons to be scared or bitter or angry. Father, may we look to Jesus who had... All the reasons to be angry and bitter and chose instead to love. And we are the direct recipients of that. Thank you that when given the opportunity to choose bitterness, the Son of God chose to love us. May we rest in that today and in Jesus' name, amen.